With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How's it going, everyone? And welcome to episode 18 of The Operating Room. I'm your host, Kev Masarejan. And with me today is at RotoFrank on Twitter, host of the Fantasy Baseball Today pod over at CBS Fantasy, Frank Stamfel. How's it going, man? Yo, what's going on, man? February 1st, excited to be here to talk some fantasy baseball. Apologies if you hear any snowblowers or snowplows right outside my house. Uh, it is snowing right now in the Northeast. It is snowing a lot. So that's what we've got going on here. It's nice to watch it fall over the next couple of days. I'm going to hate going outside for absolutely anything. But yeah, that was a long way of saying uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, it's not quite as bad over here in LA. It's like 61 and cloudy. So, you know, nobody really wants to hear about the weather, but these are the the disparities we got over on each coast. Uh, yeah, Frank's here, like he said, to talk some fantasy baseball. I got plenty of questions kind of for this show to be an intro to the 2021 season. It's officially February 1st. Uh, it, everything is right around the corner. Details are getting hammered out around the league. We have, you know, still some questions to get answered. And even though the league hasn't really given us any definitive sort of situation on how long the season's going to be, whether there's going to be a DH, uh, really what to expect. Frank and I are going to really get through each point, you know, give our takes, given that we're both pretty much not veterans so much so in the fantasy baseball community, but we know our way around and you know, we have some opinions that we'd like to share today. So before we get into any of that, uh, if you love the strategy of season-long fantasy sports and live for the short-term gratification of DFS, then you have to try out weekly fantasy sports on Owner's Box. Head on over to rotoballer.com slash box and sign up today. Weekly fantasy sports is the best of daily and season-long. It keeps you engaged through live drafting and new multi-week games. Owner's Box will be paying out users who bring their friends on board. Watch the real money rewards pile up through their first-ever three-tiered referral system. Add friends, create groups, and rank up to elevate the trash talk and competition to the next level. So head on over to rotoballer.com slash box. Sign up today and join the new wave of weekly fantasy sports. So, Frank... First and foremost, and uh, we're getting some reports that it's going to be a 154 game season. Uh, nothing really definitive right now, but 154 games is as close to 162 as we're going to get. Last season was 60 games. This season, 154 games. That's basically, in my opinion, 154 compared to 162 is like a drop in the bucket. Uh, for the most part, that feels marginal in terms of fantasy effect. But to you, does this potentially shortened season affect your draft strategy or pro- uh, projections at all? Uh, what are you kind of doing with pitchers and hitters? In my opinion, I'm going to downgrade pitchers, upgrade hitters because of this, because going from a 60 game to 154 game with how much pitchers have pitched last year, let's say 60, 70 innings, having to go 150 plus is going to be a tall task to ask of a lot of the guys who aren't used to kind of that real dip in innings pitch. How do you view that situation going forward? Yeah, so I'm actually kind of doing quite the opposite. I'm leaning into the volatility of pitching a little bit more, and I'm almost hedging my bet because I want as many insurance policies as I can possibly get. And with the uncertainty regarding pitching, um, I think that you should 
probably lean into, you know, getting one of those aces in the first two rounds. I've been trying to get, you know, three of my top 20 ranked starting pitchers, uh, four of my top 30 ranked starting pitchers, uh, just to really, again, hedge my bet, give myself some kind of insurance policies in case one goes down, multiple go down. You kind of have those others to help pick stuff up. And of course, if you're getting the aces in those early rounds, it, you know, these are a lot of guys that have done it before, right? So Garrett Cole and Jacob DeGrom and Shane Bieber, you know, maybe not over the course of a full season yet, but he was going as deep into starts as he was in 2020. I would consider him one of the workhorse starting pitchers. So I've actually been leaning into it a little bit more. And it, it also has to do with just my draft strategy in general for this year. Um, I'm very big on where does the value lie? Return on investment, right? And, and for me, I'm looking at the hitters in rounds three through 10 and players that people are potentially overreacting to from the shortened season. And you're getting names like Anthony Rendon in the third round, Alex Bregman in the third round, Starling Marte in the fourth round, uh, Glaber Torres, Javier Baez, Nick Castellanos, Austin Meadows, Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa. There's all these guys that are going in these middle rounds like rounds three through 10. Uh, and on top of that, you have all the util-only players, Yordan Alvarez, J.D. Martinez, Giancarlo Stanton, who are all, in my opinion, going at a discount. So when I can attack the hitters in those middle rounds, um, it allows me to take a few more chances on pitching early. So I understand why some people, you know, might fade it. They're worried about, you know, what people, uh, what pitchers are going to do in terms of projecting innings this upcoming season. And I understand there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, but it's because of that uncertainty that I'm actually leaning into it and, and hedging my bet here. Okay. I like where you're coming from here. I, I, I get the concept of what you're going for. You're, you're taking the high end and you're kind of backing it up with more high end to essentially guarantee yourself good starting pitching rather than just what I do essentially, I went in my uh, one NFC uh, NFBC draft this year. Uh, I went five hitters straight, and then I attacked pitching in uh, five of the next seven rounds. So my plan was kind of making sure I had a strong middle and not letting my early rounds get affected by the volatility of this. Not it's not so much so a weird season, given that last season was the outlier, the sixty game year, but kind of taking a lot less risk in those really because I'm very big on you know building that base early on in my draft last year I was open to early starting pitching I took Walker Bueller in the second round and that kind of backfired with the shortened season with uh pitchers needing to be built up so this year maybe that might not be as much of an issue given that spring training is still a possibility uh pitchers and catchers should report and we should have some modicum of a preseason but even with that, I just think in the second half of the year, we're going to see a situation where some pitchers are either getting overworked, given that they their arms kind of took that hit la or from last year to this year, or they're getting injured. Like we have situations with obvious, you know, injuries coming in like Denilson Lamette. But then there are guys uh, who, who can I point out right now that just didn't pitch a lot or haven't pitched, like Corbin Burns. You know, Corbin Burns is a good example because he hasn't really had a workhorse season yet. He was a former reliever turned starter. Uh, he's never in the majors pitched more than 60 innings. He had 59.2 last year, and that's a career high. In 2019, he pitched roughly 72 innings total. 
Uh, before that, he had a, a career high of 145, and that was in 2017. So you have someone, like, obviously there are bullpen sessions, there, there's practice, but I, I just don't feel like that makes up for the game day experience of picking up those innings and kind of working towards that. And I think that sort of situation for my starting pitching in the early rounds is just less than ideal. Like I grabbed guys like Dylan Bundy, Frankie Montas, and Patrick Corbin, who I, who are former workhorse starters who took a dip last year, but can kind of work themselves back. So someone like Burns, who's never really done it is now going to be asked to do it kind of worries me more than someone who has done it. How are you in that sort of situation where you're buying into someone who is a fantastic pitcher, but hasn't really had the work, uh, the workload yet? No, I think Corbin Burns is a perfect example, and I'm happy you brought that up. And I'll just preface this conversation by saying there's no one right way to win in fantasy baseball. So your way could work for you. Uh, and it could work for other people as well. Um, and, you know, potentially you know, for me, attacking starting pitching early might work for me. It might not work for other people. So there are many different ways to win in fantasy yeah. baseball. There's not just one way. But I think Corbin Burns is uh, is a very good example. The Brewers have come out and said that they plan to increase uh, innings workloads by like 100 from last year. So that would put him on a, about a 160 inning projection for this year. And you're right. I, I really don't know how his – how his arm is going to react to that in the second half of the season. Do we see uh, fatigue start to take over for someone like Corbin Burns? That's why I, I don't mind taking him. I think that there is a lot of talent. You have to pay a pretty good price tag to, to, to get Corbin Burns on your team. But ideally, I would want him as my SP3. And the only way that's going to happen is if you take three starting pitchers in the first five rounds, which I have found myself doing quite a bit. So uh, if you're going to take a chance on someone like a Corbin Burns or a Jesus Lozardo, who I would probably put in a similar situation, uh, Julio Arias, these young-ish starting pitchers who don't really have the track record of a big workload, I want to pair them with guys that I've seen do it before. The top three, Cole, DeGrom, Bieber, mentioned those. Uh, Trevor Bauer, if you like him, you can jump in. I'm still kind of skeptical of the situation. Giolito, I think, has kind of proved himself as a workhorse. Aaron Nola, he's my current, he's my SP4, so I'm very high on him. Uh, Luis Castillo, someone I, I think that has done it before. So I want two of those guys, and then I'll be willing to take chances on some of those starting pitchers where we do have some concerns over how many innings they're going to give you. But in the innings that they pitch, they should be really good. I think you just have to be cognizant of, of pairing them with other workhorses. That's an interesting point that you bring up Nola. I've been looking at the Phillies matchups this year, and obviously they play in the NL East. Uh, last year in the weighted runs created plus versus right-handed pitching, the Braves ranked second, the Mets ranked third, Nationals ranked 19th, but they just added Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber, both fantastic versus right-handed pitching. Are you worried at all, all about Nola versus the NL East, given how potent the offenses are going to be against right-handers? No, it's a good point that you bring up and one that I hadn't necessarily considered. Um, but I think that he's good enough where it might not really matter. I mean, he took a, a step forward last year in terms of his just um, his maturation as a pitcher. He developed this changeup. He used it more than ever before. We used to look at Nola as, all right, well, he has this fantastic curveball. The fastball is just kind of like adequate. It's low 90s. Uh, the command is just okay on it. But he really needed that third pitch to take him to the next level. And the changeup had always been okay, but it really, really took 
another step last season. Uh, so I'm hoping that he builds off of that and um, his ability to, to use that changeup specifically against left-handed pitching, which are a few names that you brought up with Kyle Schwarber uh, and Josh Bell. I think that that can help neutralize some of those left-handed bats. So uh, I'm looking at him as just kind of going down this natural route of progression. Uh, and I really like what I saw last year. So uh, for Nola, I'm, I'm not really worried about it. Yeah, no, his peripherals last year were even better than his ERA. Uh, he, he, like, obviously he's an elite starting pitcher. I'm not arguing against that. I just, I feel like he could get the the short end of the stick in some matchups if he has to go through lineups and then he hits on, you know, uh, Acuna, Freddie Freeman, and then uh, just he gets battered by the back end having them on base or whatever. So it just feels like one of those situations where, yes, he's going to be great against most matchups, but the fact that he does get those tougher offenses more often than not does worry me. And that's why I kind of lean away from someone like him, but I do like targeting some pitchers in weaker, uh, in weaker divisions. So let's say AL central, uh, NL central right now, actually NL central is a shit show. Uh, can you not agree? Like this is looking like every team's basically a seller. Uh, the Cardinals finally bought. So you know, uh, if I'm going to target starting pitching, personally, I just go for guys in easier divisions and kind of mitigate the risk that I'm taking on with, let's say, injuries and take the easiest matchups possible with the most talent possible. So like you mentioned, Giolito, great target if you were to go starting pitcher early. But I think we can both agree it's all about where you're drafting and who's available at that pick. So, you know, you mentioned you like going starting pitcher early. But would you pass up Mike Trout for Garrett Cole? I, in deeper leagues, I would. So NFBC drafts that we talk about, 15 teamers, uh, they're roto. Um, the uh, draft champions are 50 rounds, they're draft and hold, so there's no waivers or anything. It's hard to come by pitching. So I would be willing to take pitching as early as probably the fourth pick. I have DeGrom as my SP1. So uh, yeah, I, I would take DeGrom, I would take Cole ahead of uh, Mike Trout, just because I think that it's harder to come by uh, those elite starting pitchers, especially the deeper you go into a 15-team round, uh, 15 team draft, it's just harder and harder to find pitching. So I have up at the top, specifically in Roto Leagues, I have uh, Acuna, Betts, and Tatis as my top three, and then I'd be willing to take pitching a- as early as fourth overall. Okay, okay. So uh, I I hear you on that. I can't agree with the strategy because I'm just so – I'm just so brazen when it comes to taking those hitters. It it just, it it really hurts me to my core to pass up an elite hitter for any starting pitcher, no matter how good they are given, not just this season's volatility, but just starting pitcher volatility in general, given how, you know, a a slight elbow tinge can keep them out for half the season. Um, I have some issues with starting pitchers, like let's say Tyler Glass now, Blake Snell, former both one former Ray, one current Ray, both have dealt with their fair share of injuries in recent years. For someone, let's say like Blake Snell or Denilson Lamette, as I mentioned previously, do we, do you have any issues with drafting specific guys like them who are injury risks coming into 2021? Yeah, I think you have to weigh each player differently. So Denelson Lamette, I am extremely worried about, as I'm sure many people are. Uh, the Padres went out and added all this pitching, Blake Snell, you Darvish, Joe Musgrove, my man Joe Musgrove. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, for me, it's, it's just a precursor for something that's going to happen to Denelson Lamette. A uh, little bit of a shameless plug here, but um, 
on Wednesdays on on the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast, we have uh, Danny Vietti and Will Middlebrooks. They host that specific every Wednesday, and they have guests on. And last week they had Padres GM AJ Preller, and he kind of gave an update on to Nelson Lamette. And, and basically he said, like, yeah, everything's good. Doctor's saying good. He's throwing, but we're not going to know how he reacts pitching in games until he actually does it every fifth day. So. Uh, that to me, I'm kind of looking at that as like a glass half empty. Like I'm a little bit more skeptical about Lamette than uh, potentially some other people are. But yeah, worried about him. Um, Blake Snell, I don't mind the ADP. Like I think it's all right if you could get him in the fourth round of a 15 teamer, the fifth round of a 12 team league as your SP2. If you have you know someone else to back him up that you took earlier, like yeah, I think that that's pro- the risk is worth the reward at that point uh glass probably someone i worry about a little bit more not doubting the talent but uh he's never really put it together over the course of a full season with a big workload either so if i was just ranking the pitchers that i'm worried about most it's probably it's definitely denelson lamette at the top and then tyler glass now after him and then a, a bit further down I, I would go with blake snow okay that's fair uh yeah i'm probably just not drafting any of them that's just my way of going about drafts i i, I can't I can't risk it in those first five, six. Denilson Lamette's going seventh, eighth, even though his ADP was higher typically. Uh, he is dropping. Like everybody kind of is wary of him specifically. And like you mentioned, once once AJ Preller said, but you knew you were in trouble. Or like anyone who drafted Denilson Lamette is in trouble. And it kind of makes me think about the Jared Goff Ram situation where Sean McVay was like, he's our quarterback like right now. Like he's healthy right now. But is he healthy in April? Is he healthy in May? Because he can have a few great starts. Like With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. No, I'm, I don't doubt that Denilson Lamette will start the season. And I honestly, I fully expect him to have two to three really good starts. And kind of, you know, uh, a lot of the naysayers will be, we'll see a lot of backlash on Twitter. Uh, someone like uh, Dave on uh, over at the Rotosaurus pod He's very outspoken in his disdain for pitchers like Denilson Lamette. And I feel like he might get some tweets at him that are saying, hey, what about Denilson Lamette? And then, you know, fourth, fifth start, he gets shut down. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, where I fully expect him to be healthy for a few games. And then just, you know, something's going to pop up. Uh, Another guy, former Padre, current Blue Jay, I want to discuss, Kirby Yates. Had the bone spurs removed last year, presumably the closer this year for the Blue Jays. Are you are you in on Kirby Yates, or do you feel like Jordan Romano, whose ADP has been slipping of late, is a better buy, kind of as a backup option once Yates 
were to miss time. Yeah, so in some of these deeper leagues, uh, some best ball formats or some draft and hold stuff, I would try and get both if you possibly can, right? With Romano slipping, it's uh, with closer specifically in this format, I, I almost try to handcuff them. If you know who the backup is, it's kind of a weird concept because we only usually hear handcuffs regarded in fantasy football. But I think in drafts this deep where we're not making moves and there's no waiver wire, uh, you can handcuff your closer with uh, whoever you think is the next man up. So Kirby Yates, I'm not completely scared off of him. They gave him, I believe it was like $5 million guaranteed. It could go up to like eight or $9 million. They're expecting Kirby Yates to be their closer. And I think if he gets back to his anywhere close to his uh, 2019 form, he will be the closer for the season of for the Blue Jays. It's just a matter of can he actually stay healthy. So uh, if you're worried about that, you probably want to look in another direction. But if you play any type of category format in fantasy baseball, roto, head-to-head categories, that actually has saves as a category, you understand. You understand the mess that is the save category, that is the closer position in general. And so we're constantly chasing this position. And uh, something that my, my buddy Matt Modica always used to say, and I believe he still says it, you're, you're going to have to pay for saves one way or another. You're either going to pay for them in the draft or you're going to pay for them in terms of fab or your waiver priority, however you play. You are going to pay for saves. So you just have to figure out, do you want to do it in your draft or do you want to do it uh, via fab because everybody else is going to be chasing saves as well. So I have Kirby Yates inside my top 12 relievers right now. I think he opens up as the closer, uh, but with a very, very close eye on Jordan Romano as well, who was great in the shortened 2020 season. Yeah, no, totally agree. Uh, and another way you will pay for saves kind of in a back-end way is your ERA and whip. If you are starting, let's say, in your weekly lineups, a reliever you think can snipe some saves or a, a backup, per se, and they don't work out, or a, a back-end reliever like Anthony Bass, who has the Marlins job as of right now and presumably is has no competition given that who else is there, like Yimmy Garcia, but for the most part, if you are starting back-end closers or backups that you think can snipe a save and they kind of blow up in your face, you're going to take that season-long ERA or whip hit. So you are correct in your uh, analysis that you have to get saves at some point. And if those pitchers are good enough for the job in the moment, there's really, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's no reason, but it's hard to argue against kind of making sure that position, not position, but that category is necessarily filled. So I like your take on that. I don't know if I'd have Kirby Yates in my top 12, but he's definitely someone I'd be more open to drafting. Given that his ADP is just outside the 200, uh, the 200s, uh, Jordan Romano is just outside the 300. So yeah, I, I don't hate that handcuff situation. Uh, something I've been handcuffing is Hector Neris and Jose Alvarado. Uh, I don't believe Archie Bradley is that good. And I think he might struggle in Citizens Bank over in Philly. So Hector Neris, Jose Alvarado, two very talented relievers, I do believe can be a nice little handcuff situation for anybody listening. But uh, it's actually funny you bring that up because I'm in a draft right now and Archie Bradley went in the 16th round. I'm in a draft champions draft. Archie Bradley went in the 16th round. Hector Neris has not been drafted yet, nor has Jose Alvarado. So whoever drafted Archie Bradley thinks that he might be the guy getting the save. So it's just, it's, it, it kind of just proves the point further that there are also teams like Philly who we don't really know who the closer is going to be. Cincinnati, where I like Amir Garrett and I like Lucas Sims, but who's going to be the closer? Tampa Bay, good luck figuring it out. You're going to pull your hair out all season long chasing saves with uh, Tampa Bay. But I think it just furthers the point that chasing saves and closers is 
not fun. Yeah, definitely not. I think in uh, in typical head-to-head leagues, you can absolutely fade closer, stream, and you know work your way up to le- not leading the league, but kind of being more middling in saves. And you that could totally work out for you. I love that strategy. Uh, I hate drafting closers in like 12-team head-to-head leagues where you're kind of putting yourself in a rough spot if they were to lose their job because you spent a pretty valuable pick on that and maybe you lost out on a closer and someone else picked up the back-end closer. But in a draft-and-hold league, yeah, you have to get a guy with a pretty secure job or as close to. Like, I like Giovanni Gallegos. I don't think Jordan Hicks is going to be ready to close games this year. So I'd be drafting someone like Giovanni Gallegos early and often, given that he's probably the closer over in St. Louis. I don't know if you agree with that, but... The point being, I'm way more open in these sorts of leagues to spend a higher end pick on closers than uh, a typical home league because there are you are kind of speaking two different languages uh, when discussing roto NFC leagues or roto leagues in general and head to head leagues. I feel like it's kind of lost when discussing on Twitter because you know a lot of the big name fantasy analysts they're speaking to a specific NFC NFBC based grouping when a lot of people do you know still play you know home leagues i still play in home leagues i don't know if you do as well or you're uh, fully nfc nfbc based now uh wh- where are you at i definitely play in home leagues and, and i think this is also a fantastic point and one that we should probably talk about more me we as like the fantasy baseball community and on the fantasy baseball today pod yeah, it's especially tough because I know that there are all different types of people that are listening and watching and not just to, to my podcast, your podcast, everyone's podcast there, like to be able to reach the broad range of people who play fantasy baseball it is nearly impossible because you have so many people that you wouldn't even realize play 10 team head to head points league, super shallow format. And here we are talking about like Jordan Romano and handcuffing relievers and closers and stuff. And that's going to help somebody because there's people who play in deep roto leagues and deep AL only leagues and, and they need this information. But there's also a vast majority of people who are playing in 10 team points leagues, 10 team roto, uh, 12 team head to head categories where, you know, things are potentially not going as deep into the draft that we're talking about here. So I, I do think that is a good point that you bring up. If you play in a head to head points league and you only start two relievers, Try and draft a starting pitcher who has relief pitcher eligibility or be the last person in your league to take a closer. That is my strategy in a head-to-head points league. Uh, and in head-to-head categories, I typically like to target relievers who give you really good ratios, You know, maybe some uh, some holds guys, even if you don't play with a holds category. Uh, but that's what I would look at in, in that type of format. In a roto context, um, I typically build for balance. I don't punt or fade any type of uh, categories. So that's where you're, you're going to be changing saves more often in in those roto leagues yeah no that makes total sense and i totally agree with what you said about points leagues just don't bother with relievers take literally either the last reliever reliever available or stream that spot or do whatever just you know don't bother with taking and i i hate discussing points leagues honestly because a lot of questions you get i'm like just take the guy who scores more points in your format that's basically it like there's you know obviously i have players I prefer who I believe are going to be long-term values, but there are some like, you know, some obvious situations where you can look at average points scored and, you know, points leagues are so weird. You can pick up a guy like Andrelton Simmons back in the day. And like, he'd be like one of the highest scoring shortstops and he'd have like five home runs through 120 games or something. And you'd just be like, this doesn't make any sense. But uh, 
getting on with this discussion with how this season is going to work uh, going forward in 2021, uh, there's still some uncertainty with the NLDH. Is it? Is it not? But as of right now, I'm operating in drafts with it being a thing. How do you feel on the NLDH as of right now? Yeah, so the latest uh, proposal that the MLB offered to the Players Association had the 154-game schedule, as you mentioned earlier, and it also had expanded playoffs and the National League DH. So I am I'm hopeful. I mean, as of now, if the season started today, there would not be a National League DH, which kind of messes things up. But, but I am hopeful that we are going to have the National League DH, and, and that's how I've been drafting as well. I would say that the teams that I think are affected most are the Padres and the Reds because the Padres, they have three spots currently for five players. They have second base and they have the two corner outfield spots for Tommy Pham, Will Myers, Jake Cronenworth, Ha-Sung Kim, and Jerickson Profar. And Ha-Sung Kim in particular, uh, I mean, early in January, once he signed with the Padres, you know, people were freaking out. They were pushing him up inside the top 150 of drafts and you know, potential 2020 bat. I, I'm not sure that he can actually get there, but some people are, are very bullish on him. But is he going to play every day? Is he going to play, you know, five out of six games in a week? Is it four out of six games in a week? I do have my concerns uh, regarding Kim, Cronenworth, and Profar's playing time. I think they probably take away a little bit from each other. And then with the Reds, uh, I love the value on all of Jesse Winker, Nixon Zell, and Shogo Akiyama. But if there's no DH, that means... One of those guys is, is probably being squeezed, and it's just whoever's performing best is going to get the opportunity to play. So uh, those are probably the, the situations I'm looking at most closely between the Padres and the Reds. Yeah, no, Padres are pretty much a mess as of right now. They will, and they kind of play similar positions in the middle infield, no? Yeah, I mean, uh, Kim was actually a shortstop, and we know he's not going to play shortstop because they have Fernando oh. Tatis. So the original, my original thought was, all right, he's going to play second base. Um, you know, maybe they were going to move Cronenworth in another deal, and they've made deals, but they've kept Cronenworth on. So uh, they're now talking about using Cronenworth all over the place. Second, you know, maybe give Machado a day off here and there. You could play him at third. You could play him in, in, at the corner outfield spots. But, yeah, I mean, as of now, it seems like Kim, Cronenworth, and Profar uh, are probably all going to take away from each other. And I like Tommy Pham for Roto Leagues, but extensive injury history – you know, maybe they want to keep him fresh and they give him a day or two off per week. So if they do that, uh, that obviously affects his volume and his ability to uh, to give us counting stats for fantasy. That They have just so much depth, as you mentioned, and it's probably going to take some injuries to really get consistent playtime out of anyone. I really liked Cronenworth before all of these moves were made because like his stat cast profile is arguably the most random in the entire league. He's He was the hottest hitter in the MLB, according to StatCast last year, or one of the top 10. So that always kind of threw me off in how to evaluate him because, you know, I, I put a good amount of stock into StatCast for most hitters. Like you can tell, you know, it, it gives you a good tell on who's a good hitter, who's not, uh, who kind of had some luck and who didn't. Especially with a short season, we have kind of a skewed sample and I'll get, and we'll both get into how we view the short season sample numbers for 2020 into 2021. But for right now, 
with the DH, uh, I think Eno Saris had a, he's been making some good points on Twitter. He said expanded postseason is the biggest chip the players union has to give. If they give it up to play the full year and universal DH in return, it's unclear what more they'd have to give when it was time to work on the CBA and try to change minimum salary arbitration structure. So the currently reported deal looks reasonable, but it also has this underpinning to it. So there is a good chance we get this DH at the end of the day. But uh, I, you have to be wary. And I, I just think for guys like I'm, I'm high on J.D. Davis. Uh, I, I'm, I just think he's one of the best, uh, most underrated hitters in the league. You can get him after pick 200, essentially. And I don't know if he's going to play every day, even though he's presumably the starting third baseman for the Mets. Uh, and that's something that's been kind of boggling my mind. I'm still drafting J.D. Davis, but I'm doing it kind of while walking on eggshells because I don't want to take him too early and kind of miss out on someone who might be playing more consistently. Uh, The Mets don't really have too many great bench bats at the moment, but I can just see them, you know, moving him around if the defense isn't fantastic and they're kind of in a position where they want to put the best defenders on the field that they can at times if their pitchers are struggling or something's occurring because, you know, they've heavily invested in starting pitching with, uh, you know, obviously getting Carrasco, uh, bringing back Stroman. And I, I do have a problem with this DH not really being settled in yet. But I still have to draft assuming that we do have it because it, it just, I, I like going off of once they did enact the DH, it was going to be so hard to go back from it. That's kind of my end of day mindset. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that's what I thought as well. But uh, it's a good point that you bring up regarding the, the bargaining chip for the players association uh regarding the expanded playoffs because you're right i mean they the cba is expiring after this year the whole arbitration um the the, like the super two deadlines the way that prospects are handled it is an absolute mess i mean there's so much wrong with baseball right now but that is probably at the forefront of things is is the manipulation regarding prospects and young players so uh, yeah, it, look, if they have to kind of uh, hold back the expanded playoffs as a bargaining chip, I don't have an issue with that. But if that's the case, then we might not get the universal DH. So we have to keep those things in mind. Again, I think the Padres and Reds are affected most. I have looked at the Mets because the love that you share for J.D. Davis is the love that I have for Dominic Smith. And I think it's a similar situation. I don't really think that there's anybody on the bench that they would play over a Dom Smith. Like, I don't think they're throwing Jose Martinez or, or Guillermo Heredia out there. But uh, Sandy Alderson, who is the president of the Mets, has talked about not loving the defense from Dom Smith in left field. So if that's something that they want to shore up and they want to tighten up, then you know maybe he loses a few at-bats in a few games here and there. I hope not because Dom Smith's bat is really good, and that's what he just showed us in, in 2020 uh, and even dating back to 2019. But, uh, yeah, I think it just kind of has to be in the back of your mind for guys like Dom Smith and J.D. Davis. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it's just – it's a frustrating situation right now and it's going to get hammered out eventually. I hope because, you know, drafts are underway across the world. Uh, Even though most fantasy baseball players are, you know, they're, they usually draft a week before the, uh, the season starts, given that injuries can still occur and you want the cleanest draft possible, you know, anyone and everyone doing NFPC drafts is already like, they at least have one or two teams by now. So yeah, you just kind of have to go off not just your gut, but everything you're hearing left and right. Uh, I'm I'm still very much so frustrated, but one of the bigger 
issues and kind of discrepancies for a lot of people drafting right now is how heavily to weigh 2020 results. Um, are you disregarding the individual results from the 2020 season for massive under and over performers? Or are you seeing anyone who's more negligible? Like there were a lot of cases of COVID throughout the league. We saw it rampant throughout like the Marlins and Cardinals organization. You mentioned Austin Meadows earlier. And uh, he was, in my opinion, the one biggest hit by COVID of anyone in the entire league in terms of uh, name value and lack of production. So I'm kind of giving, I'm throwing him a mulligan. How are you seeing this whole situation kind of play out from 2020 to now? Yeah, so this is the single toughest question. I think outside of how are you handling pitching and... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And how are you projecting innings for the 2021 season? I think how are you weighing 2020 production is, is probably the toughest question to answer. And this is kind of a cop out. Um, but I think that you just kind of have to pick and choose, right? And you kind of have to weigh each situation differently. And you mentioned Austin Meadows. He was a top three, four-round pick last year. And now one season after dealing with COVID, as soon as he came back, he uh, dealt with a an oblique injury, um, which uh, hampered his ability to play even into the postseason. Uh, I think you kind of give him a pass. Same thing with Yohan Moncada, who admitted he was never himself and that he was – tired all season long as he dealt with symptoms of COVID. So, um, and, and even like Jack Flaherty, just a super weird season. The Cardinals, uh, just their, their season in general, like they had so much, so many layoffs and then they had to play, uh, they had to play all these double headers. Like it was a weird season for everyone, but specifically for like the Marlins and Cardinals. Like if you want to give anyone a break on those teams, I would not blame you. But at the same time, I don't want to overlook things that some players did differently. Now, I think you have to figure out how to weigh it. Like, you don't want to put too much weight on things that, that players did differently. For example, like Salvador Perez, he was like, this was the best version of Salvador Perez that we have ever seen before, right? And it's kind of weird because he's like a 30 year old catcher, um, but you look at his stat cast page uh, it, and there's a lot of red. He hit the ball harder than ever before, he hit more line drives than ever before. Um, and he had like an, an OPS over 900, whereas he never had an OPS over 800 in any season ever before. So uh, I think that's one where, okay, yes, we should push him up the board, but you know, once we get into like pick 80, pick 90, like we're probably putting too much value on the season for Salvador Perez. So I think you have to pick and choose. Same thing with like Jose Abreu. Like now he's a third round pick. That's probably too high in my opinion. And I've loved Jose Abreu for years. And I, I was telling people all last season, 
draft Jose Abreu. He's annually undervalued. But um, now, last year, coming off the AL MVP, he's being pushed up draft board. So I think it's a little bit of pick and choose. I want to take some things away that that players did differently. Spoke about Aaron Nola earlier uh, and some of the Salvador Perez and and Jose Abreu. But uh, I think you just kind of have to be careful with putting too much weight on anything that happened last year. I love that you brought up those two players because I have some opinions. Actually, okay, Bennett Carroll... Uh, on Twitter, he had a really good take on Jose Abreu, and he's a White Sox fan. He said last year, Jose Abreu's AL MVP year were the two hot months you get out of Jose Abreu every year, and you didn't get the two cold months. So you have a situation where you're drafting Abreu at literally the greatest version of Jose Abreu. And you know, there's not to say he isn't a good player. He's a fantastic player. He could totally hit 300 again. Uh, but is he going to be on pace for 50 home runs? I don't think so. I think he could hit 35. So you're getting a guy about 80 or so runs, 35 home runs with a 300 average. That's worth a pick. Like that's worth taking. Is it worth taking where you're getting him? I I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't agree with that whatsoever because he had a 300 ISO that's higher than his typical two to 250 range. Uh, strikeout rate was as high as ever. Walk rate was fairly normal. You're getting a guy who like, he played as, as well as possible. And even before then, he kind of in his 2018, 2019 seasons, those were those dipped down from his uh, 2017 to 2014 year or 2014 to 2017 necessarily. So we were seeing a dip in Jose Abreu and then we got a peak performance. So he can arguably, I feel like he's fine. You're getting a good player, but uh, yeah, I, there's no way I would ever pay for Jose Abreu where he's going. I'd rather just draft Anthony Rizzo or Paul Goldschmidt five rounds later, who uh, Paul Goldschmidt, he had a pretty good year, still kind of undervalued because he's not stealing bags anymore. Rizzo down year, but the Cubs were just a mess last year and they're still looking like they're going to sell and be even more of a mess, but maybe he plays somewhere else. Uh, Salvador Perez, that's a fantastic conversation because walk rate, lowest of his career, 1.9%. Strikeout rate, highest of his career, 23.1%. BABIP, 100 points higher than it has been typically, 375 BABIP. And Salvador Perez is not the fastest guy in the world. He's not going to average a high. He's not going to have a BABIP over 300 typically, maybe a little higher. He had 311 in 2013, but that's seven, eight years ago now. What are we doing here drafting Salvador Perez in the top 10 rounds? But specifically for Salvador Perez, like why I think he's so interesting is because yes, like he's done things he's never done before and we are buying him at potentially his peak, but he also had that year off, right? So remember Salvador Perez was like an Ironman. He played every single game for the Royals for like five years straight. So I think the year off for him uh, recovering from Tommy John actually was super beneficial because now it kind of like gave him an opportunity to restart his career. Uh, And I pulled a couple of quotes. I read some articles about like what he did differently last year. And he said that like he changed up his routine in, in in the year that he had off, he had the opportunity to like reflect and kind of change up what he's going to do, what he was going to do in 2020. And he did just that. Like he had a new routine. He talked about it and uh, like his aggressiveness, he was still very aggressive, but he also, um, he also swang at pitches inside the strike zone more than ever before. I mean, 78% Z swing for Salvador Perez, um, I think, is is growth, which is weird to say about a catcher who's like 30, 31 years old. But, uh, yeah, like, I still do like him. It might be – this might be an oversimplification, but it might just be as easy as, like, 
fade players who are coming off career years in 2020 and just buy the dip on everyone who put up an uncharacteristic statistical season like Javier Baez had a sub 600 OPS. That's not going to happen again, at least in my opinion. Alex Bregman had a weird year. All the Astros did. So I think it's probably easiest to just say like fade everyone who had a career year and, and buy people who had like this weird statistical anomaly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But uh, I like that analysis on Sal Perez. I know Sal Perez, that's a good take where the year off actually benefited him post-injury rather than anything else. So I, I, I'll i buy that he's a better hitter than before. I, I can buy that change. That's that's something tangible that I do believe can be sustainable, but obviously that BABIP is going to go down. So maybe he hits more home runs. Maybe he hit, he's a 30 home run hitter now rather than a 25, 27 home run hitter. But I, I'm not buying an average over like 260. Um, he does still have significant time off since, you know, since being a workhorse catcher, he only played 37 games last year. So 37 games since 2018, you know, that's plenty of rest for a player who was an Ironman, as you did say. So, you know, I'm totally open to that as the pros for Sal Perez. I'm still probably not going to buy in, but if someone were to give me that reasoning for drafting him, I wouldn't blame them. But there are some guys I'm looking at, let's say, Zach Plesak. He's he's a popular discussion among fantasy analysts on Twitter as this guy who is just that, that out-of-nowhere breakout performance. When his numbers since since the minors look pretty damn good, Zach Plesak's been a good, sturdy starting pitcher who could pitch heavy innings, who has a low strike, who has a low walk rate, Uh, not high strikeout rate, but solid. It's been above, it's been around 25% or so. It got to 27.7 last year, but he's been as high as 30. I mean, 31.3 was his uh, uh, low A ball year in 2017. But in 2019 in AAA, it hit at 30.7%. He just hit 26 years old. That was 11 days ago. Are you buying a breakout performance like Zach Plesak, or is that another fade for you as an overperformance? So th- this goes back to my original statement was like, you pick and choose, right? Like what actually mm-hmm. matters. And, and for Plesak, 26 years old, completely changed his his pitch mix in, in 2020, which, okay, it's only eight starts, right? And we are now drafting him as a top 25, top 20 starting pitcher inside the first four or five rounds based on eight starts against Lower-level competition we have to consider because he was pitching in the American League Central against teams like the Tigers and the Royals, etc. But he did change his pitch mix. He lowered his fastball usage about 13%. He used his slider and his changeup more, and and both pitches were really good, and we saw that reflected in his swinging strike rate and his strikeout rate in general, and and also his command was much, much better. Um, In general, I am am buying Plesak, but... I think I'm doing it cautiously. I think he's he's one of these he's one of the harder ones to figure out where we can look back like halfway through the season and we can say like okay, we were dead wrong. He's like a top 5 pitcher for fantasy. Uh Cleveland has a really uh, a great way of working with with pitchers or he can be like dropped. He can be like in the minor somewhere. Uh we could be like why are we buying Playstack based on eight starts? So I think that he probably has one of the bigger range of outcomes, but generally I, I am buying what I saw last year. Yeah, no, I'm buying as well. I think Plesak, he has enough of a track record throughout the minors as 
a good like I, I love great command pitchers with good good enough strikeout rates and he seems like the guy he can he can create whiffs um the 14.3 percent swing strike rate last year pretty pretty damn good I, I believe in the Cleveland uh, the Cleveland Indians organization in developing pitchers. We've seen that time and time again over the past decade or so. We're seeing that with Bieber now. Uh, Tristan McKenzie, although I'm not buying someone like him, you know, he's obviously a higher end prospect. And, you know, if he had the f- proper frame to pitch heavy innings, I'd be buying in as well. But yeah, no, I, I, I love what Plesak showed last year. He might be an idiot off the field, but on the field, he's a fantastic pitcher. And, you know, he's probably not going to be a two, three ERA guy, but like mid threes for your, where you're getting him with his strikeout rate with the low whip, you know, he had a 0.8 whip last year. So let's say that's 1.1, 1.15. You'll take that three, five, 1.15 dough. Yeah, for sure. With a strikeout per inning as well. I mean, he still pitches in the American League Central. So um, take mm-hmm. everything what I just said. And, you know, he's still going up against the Tigers and the Royals and, you know, the Twins, which took a step back last year. So consider all those things, and I am probably closer than I am to, to you in buying Plesak than, than someone who's off of him. Yeah, no. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't get to face the Cleveland Indians uh, hitters. That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. That would be, uh, that would be a dream come true. But uh, it is what it is. Uh, I do, like I said before, I do love buying pitchers in these bad bad divisions just anyone in the central just target any starting pitcher that pitches in the al or nl central and you'll be happy at the end of the day i i I do i just wholeheartedly believe that you know if you bring up zach plesak played easy competition in 2020 why would he repeat this performance well he's gonna play easy competition in 2021 so you know all's well that ends well with him Uh, i do believe the royals are a better lineup than we give them credit for. They did get Carlos Santana, who was a bit of an underperformer last year. Obviously, they have Sal Perez, who we just discussed, who was um, an overperformer, but should, should still be fine. Jose, Jorge Soler, um, down year. Hunter Dozier, down year. But I do believe in them kind of bouncing back a tad. Uh, Mondesi kind of picked himself up in the second half of last year. Whit Merrifield maybe gets traded, but there, there are some good bats in this lineup. I think they could be closer to a middling... Uh, offense than a lower end offense as they've typically been but even so it's as a whole the the AL Central is still a cakewalk so yeah no I'm definitely in on a guy like Plesak who in a short she's in a short season showed a good bit now speaking of guys we like I want you to give me three guys you're just higher on for this season than you feel like consensus is yeah, so I'll start with Austin Meadows. I mentioned the name already. I am still a big fan of him. I'm not fading him based on what happened last year. COVID situation, dealt with an oblique injury. He was playing through an oblique injury, I believe, for most of the postseason. People have brought up the fact that they are scared of the Tampa Bay Rays because they like to use platoon situations. Uh, Austin Meadows is too good to platoon. That is my honest opinion. And I looked at his splits from 2018, 921 OPS against lefties. Uh, in 2019, that breakout season, he had an 837 OPS against lefties. I think he's pretty good against lefties. I really don't have any <laughs> concerns over splits for Austin Meadows. So can he get back to being 270-plus, 25 home runs, double-digit steals, pretty good counting stats in, a, in the middle of a, a solid raise lineup? Yeah, I, I think that's all attainable for Austin Meadows. So I'm buying the dip there. This one is a little bit more polarizing, um, and I'll be interested to hear what you think about him. But Chris Paddock. Some people might just think that Chris Paddock is not a good pitcher. He's a two-pitch pitcher guy. He's uh, all right. He throws 
mid-90s fastball. He has good command. He has that Vulcan changeup. We've all seen the gifts. Uh, it's a really good pitch, but he doesn't have a third pitch. Now, I'm not saying the curveball is going to become anything good, but if he uses the curveball just 10 to 12% of the time, and there have been flashes of it being an adequate pitch. We only need that pitch to be adequate. Uh, his fastball regressed mightily last season, and uh, some people who are much smarter than me and did more research on this, uh, I wish I can kind of give people credit where it's due, but they've talked about his fastball. He was working on a cutter last year, so it kind of affected the the plane in which he was throwing his fastball, where he was getting a little bit more horizontal movement rather than vertical movement, which he was getting in his breakout 2019 season. So we just saw Denelson Lamette have this fantastic year, and when I read the quotes on, on you know why he was as successful as he was, A.J. Preller talked a lot about they got Denelson Lamette's fastball back on track. If they can do that with Denelson Lamette, I think that a pitcher of Chris Paddock's magnitude, yes, they can get him back on track. They can get his fastball back on track, ride that high in the zone, use the changeup to neutralize lefties, and make the curveball an adequate third pitch. I, I think you know last year he was being drafted as a top 15 starting pitcher. Now he's being drafted you know sometimes outside the top 30 starting pitchers. Chris Paddock's still only 25 years old. Uh, great defense behind him. Great run support behind him. Uh, Chris Paddock is someone that I'm going back to, and, and a lot of times I'm getting as like, my SP3 or SP4. And then the last name I wanted to mention is Carlos Correa, who is someone who I have never been on in the past because I always worried about the injuries versus the price tag, what you had to pay to get Carlos Correa on your team. Now we're getting him outside the top 120 picks, and it's kind of a very similar situation to me with how I felt about Corey Seager last year in that the talent, it, is, it just outweighs the risk at this point. So, I mean, if you're getting him in like the ninth, 10th round, We've seen Correa have two uh, seasons with a 900-plus OPS in the past four seasons. We all saw what he did in the postseason, and he's entering a contract year. You ask me, Carlos Correa is a guy that uh, he's probably going to put forth a little bit more effort in a contract year. That's just what I've gained from watching him play. So uh, 26 years old in the prime of his career, I think he'll manage to stay healthy this year, and I think he'll have a really big season. Okay, uh... I'm with you on Austin Meadows and Chris Paddock. I'll get into both of them. You know, I'll get into one of them more extensively than the other, but I just cannot buy into Carlos Correa. I, I, I have in the past. I totally have. I know contract years here, but just the lack of speed, the back injuries, like it, it's, these aren't injuries that can be, you know, uh, that can be looked over like, uh, let's say a broken wrist or something that isn't, you know, repeatable. And I hate to give someone an injury-prone label, but Carlos Correa, for me, is as injury-prone as they come, particularly playing shortstop. He's like, that's one of the positions where you have to be as athletic as possible. And, you know, although DH is a possibility, I mean, Jordan Alvarez is there DHing. So it's not like they can just, you know, if something were to pop up, just throw him in the DH spot. So I think there's a lot of risk there. His production throughout the past four years is fairly mediocre outside of a game-to-game basis like he hasn't put up a full like I mean he put up a full season last year he played 58 games but he was pretty mediocre 264 average five home runs 22 runs 25 RBIs and 221 plate appearances no steals uh, wa- uh walk to strikeout ratio a little lower than usual but nothing too egregious uh hitting a ton of ground balls obviously I do believe on a game-to-game basis Carlos Correa will bounce back from last year and you know, he'll do his best in the offseason to be in his best self, like the, be in the best shape possible. But 
back injuries and just what he's dealt with throughout his career, I, I, I cannot get myself to buy in. I'd rather invest in either Xander Bogarts or Corey Seager early on, uh, maybe even Bo Bichette early on if I were to choose to. Like, I love the early shortstops outside of like someone like Mondesi who I'm out on, but that, no, I, I can't get into Correa, but I, I get where you're coming from. I, I love the... I love the concept contract year elite player for a former first overall draft pick. Uh, but I don't know how he's going to manage these injuries. I just don't know how someone with his issues stays healthy for a full season when he hasn't been able to manage that since 2016, but uh, Austin Meadows all the way in with you on that. Uh, I'll buy him wherever I can get him a COVID shortened season or a COVID affected season for him is so it's just such an outlier. You can't really put, your finger on it and really say, okay, this is exactly what it affected. There was no one thing. He was just completely a different hitter last year. That was not the Austin Meadows we've known over the past or the two years before that. Obviously he did have his struggles in the minors with the pirates. Uh, He did kind of finally bounce back towards the end of his career and then get traded to the Rays. But I think Austin Meadows developed enough to kind of build enough of a track record to trust him as a talented hitter that last year can just be a complete aberration and we can disregard that and can consider that one of those pick and shoe situations where you're like, this guy was wholly affected by the pandemic and COVID and whatnot. And you just throw that in a bin of itself. Chris Paddock, he didn't have COVID, but I do believe that something happened with his either with his head being the ace of his staff and just going into a pretty good Padres team and he just maybe tried to tinker a little too much because we know he's a he's an extremely talented pitching prospect or was an extremely talented pitching prospect uh 60 fb fastball 70 change up 60 command and then he totally lost his fastball last year like you mentioned Uh, It's not like the walks were out of control. His home runs, a quarter of his fly balls turned into home runs last year. But thanks to XFIP and how we look at how that transitions, it kind of neutralizes home run rate. His XFIP was even better last year than it was in his fantastic 2019 season where he was kind of overperforming. So last year, obviously, he had an underperformance. 2019 had a little bit of an overperformance. I think we could get a good middling outcome out of Paddock. And something I read on the Fangraphs forums from one of the members over there uh, really kind of swayed me and made me buy in. I took Chris Paddock in my one NFC draft, NFBC draft, as my SP2. You mentioned him as your SP3. I take him as my SP2. I think he could have a damn good year. Uh, The comment here was Padres fan here. This year, he added a cutter to his mix. Allegedly, learning a cutter can affect a four-seamer spin axis. This year, Paddock's four-seamer had less spin, had less carry, and had more horizontal movement than it did in the past. So a high fastball that might have been out of reach was now fouled off, and one that would have been a foul now found the barrel. And also, the horizontal movement that meant that a fastball he meant to bury in on a left-hander was running out over the plate. There was also speculation that he was tipping his pitches in a start against Oakland that seemed to be apparent. He was throwing some really nice changeup that should have been swing and miss, and batters weren't even flinching at it. Add that to a predictable first pitch fastball strike, and it all adds up to some minor issues that turn a potentially dominant pitcher into a struggling one. The good news is 
that this stuff is all fixable through off-season work. He's become a fami- he's become familiar with Rapsodo and Edgertronic equipment, so some work in a pitch lab can help him get the four-seamer back on track. Bullpen bullpen camera work can help with the tipping. Sequencing is something that pitchers can work on throughout their career, and Paddock needs to learn how to be less predictable. I expect some form of a bounce back season. It'll have some bumps, I'm sure, but the guy's too talented to fade away. Now, I'm all for what you mentioned with Correa. You buy the talent. I'm buying the talent with Chris Paddock this year. Uh, I took him in the top 100, in the back end of the top 100, but I I just think this guy is such a good pitcher that he cannot be as bad as last year. And the number, it's just such a fluky situation having a quarter of your five balls go for home runs. Like, his walks were fine. His strikeouts were down, but I think he could get that over 25% back to where it was in the 2019 range. His walk rate was similar around 5%. You know, his whip was fine. He had a 122 whip. Like I'm all the way in on Paddock here. I think you're getting him at an extreme discount. He should be a perennial top 50 guy going forward. So yeah, totally in on Paddock, but uh, talk to me about some guys who might, who you might be lower on. Yeah, so this one's a little bit obvious and there's still a chance that this player makes me look absolutely foolish in 2020. Max Scherzer, he's 36 years old, ADP of 27. Uh, I mean, it's just, like we have some warning signs here. The batting average against has been on the rise in each of the past two seasons, thanks to the two hardest, uh, highest hard hit rates of his career, and the walks three over three walks per nine in 2020. Um, that is his highest mark since 2010. 14.7 percent strike rate, still really, really damn good, by the way, uh, was his lowest since 2014. We spoke about Correa having like these recurring back injuries, uh, something. Pretty similar with Max Scherzer. He's dealt with the neck and back injuries. It helped uh, held him out of the World Series two years ago back in 2019. So just the combination of him getting up there in age, we do have some signs of skill decline as well with Max Scherzer. I, I do worry about him. And same thing with uh, Aaron Judge. The, the thing with Aaron Judge, for me, and I'm a Yankee fan, so it's like whatever, no bias here. Um, this has everything to do with the price of Giancarlo Stan. I have no idea for the life of me why they're going 60 picks apart in drafts. Is it because Stanton is util only and Judge has outfield eligibility? Should that really be worth 60 picks? Probably not. They both have an extensive uh, injury history. And you spoke about this with Correa, but it's kind of similar for Judge where these are recurring things. It's like oblique over and over again. I kind of just think that like he's too big to play baseball. And it's like kind of a weird thing to say, but like, He's just a massive human being, and, and like you do need a level of flexibility to be able to play baseball every single day without getting hurt, and I worry about that with Aaron Judge. So uh, in this current draft that I'm in, he went pick 73, and I took Stanton at pick 129. So I'm getting him nearly 60 picks later. Uh, I'll do that every single day of the week. I'm, just, I'm not going to take Judge where he's going. Uh, and Dylan Bundy, someone you mentioned that you have drafted, um, I'm not really buying in on Dylan Bundy. It was really just his four, his first four starts of 2020 where he had that 1.57 ERA. He was using his slider more, his changeup more, uh, and that was exciting. And then his last eight starts, he had a 4.62 ERA, uh, started using his fastball more, which is like a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. It's not very good. He lowered his slider usage about 8% over those final eight starts, uh, used his changeup a little bit more. But basically what I noticed with Bundy is – when he doesn't have his slider working, everything just kind of crumbles for him. Like, that is his bread and butter. Uh, and there were starts last year where he just did not have a feel for that pitch. And if that happens, 
he really just kind of goes to this fastball changeup combination, and his fastball's like 90 miles per hour, and it's straight, and I just don't think it's very good. So uh, Dylan Bundy, who was great, a great buy last year outside the top 280p, you know, now he's right around 100. He's going right around Paddock. Uh, that's too early, in my opinion, for Dylan Bundy. Yeah, no, Bundy. Uh, I still like over those last eight starts, he had a 3-4-6 FIP. I exit that 4-3-6 because of a lower home run fly ball, fly ball. But, you know, I I just believe in the pitcher itself. Uh, I think he's still got some development to go. Um, the peripherals on the season look fantastic. Uh, sub-4 CRA and XFIP. Uh, strikeout rate, I, I think he could hit a strikeout rate nearly 30%. Although you did mention that that fastball is low. It, it was at 90.5 miles per hour last year. Uh, he started his career with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, but, like, that's, you know, that's changed over the past few years. If you can get that fastball working to somewhere like 91 and a half to 92, uh, those strikeouts are going to come back. Uh, you know, I'll buy into he's still developing. So I'm not going off of the results of 2020 so much so as I'm going off of him being away from the Orioles organization, which stymied him, as we know. I, I believe you would agree with me here that, you know, getting away with the Orioles is the best thing he could have done. And uh, something you brought up, contract year he's a free agent in 2022 so uh, maybe this offseason he's working as hard as possible put out his best results but you you brought up Aaron Judge as well I'm pretty much out on him Uh, same situation as Carlos Correa just you know you have to show it to me I'm not going to buy someone off of multiple injured years Uh, Aaron Judge uh, 2018 112 games played 2019 102 last season he played half the year with 28 games so I, I just can't pay the price for someone like that with a 270 average, which I'm going to expect. In OBP, I find it hard to pass up someone like Aaron Judge, given how elite his OBP is. I think it's fine to lose those games, given that he is helping you so much in that category, along with the home runs, RBIs, and runs and whatnot. Uh, he can even steal some bags. He can get you like five steals, maybe. So. I don't hate buying Aaron Judge in that specific format or even an OPS sort of format but yeah in a in a typical 15 team 12 team roto category league with average i'm not buying Aaron judge uh stanton i i, I can't do util only on stanton i, I just oh god same thing with him and the injuries uh 41 games over the past two years and i know he has a better track record than aaron judge obviously he's played a lot longer and a lot of his injury issues throughout his career kind of fluky he had the you know he had broken jaw I believe that was 2015 with the Marlins and uh, that's not really injury prone that's just bad luck but uh, Stanton even at his ADP in the top 160 I believe uh, he's going right now you meant oh no he's 118 since January 1st yeah that's just far too high for me I'd rather take someone like Pablo Lopez going two picks later uh someone like uh Kevin Gaussman I I I'm not 100% in on Kevin Gaussman but at the right price like around his ADP I will buy in I take the bounce back on Chris Bryant um Patrick Corbin a few picks later I'd rather be in on uh just yeah no I, I man I can't buy someone who's played 40 games over the past two years that's just not something I'm interested in at all I I even though that's not someone you're in love with uh I, I just can't do it. I, I think I'd rather have Judge at ADP than Stanton, honestly. Mm. Yeah, Stanton and, and Correa, for me, for years, I, I've been off for the reasons you mentioned. But, uh, like, 
they were being Stan was like a top seventy pick last year, and Correa uh, was inside the top one hundred last year, and he just continues to fall. So, uh, I just think when you could get players of that caliber, like the further you go into a draft, the the more risk you should be willing to take, especially on for the upside for someone like Stanton, who look in Yankee Stadium, if he can play one hundred and forty plus games, like he can hit 40, 45 home runs. Like, I don't think anybody would argue that. It's just a matter of him actually staying on the field. And I don't know how much stock you want to put into, like, he played, what, 20, 25 games last year, but he did make some um, tangible changes where, like, he was swinging and missing less and he was hitting more line drives than ever before. So uh, they were talking about him being slimmed down and maybe that potentially helping Giancarlo Stanton uh, last season. So... And he looked great in the postseason. It's, it's just a matter of him actually staying on the field. So do I want Correa and Stanton on the same team? No, probably not. That's, that's too much <laughs> risk. But yeah. do I want one of them in case they can, you know, hit their ultimate upside? Um, yeah, I think, you know, where they're going is probably a range where I do think they're worth the risk. Now, that's an interesting point you bring up where you're willing to take risks later in the draft. And that's exactly why I wait on starting pitching. I believe those picks, like there's so much risk around there. I'd rather just select all my starting pitching after pick, let's say, you know, after my seventh or eighth pick where, you know, you're just taking upside and I'd rather take a bunch of starters with good enough floors and high enough upside. Like I just mentioned, Patrick Corbin, who we've seen be an ace in the past. And I know he had his faults last year, uh, his velocity dipped, but you know, someone like that, I'd rather bank on to fill out my rotation with my hitters with upside and whatnot early on that that's just the strategy I kind of always would lean towards or not always because I used to be, you know, I used to be more open to taking early starting pitching, but now I've kind of shifted and become a lot safer in drafts early on and then taking my risk later, like you did mention. So uh, what you do say, it makes just total sense, though taking at least one of these guys, like these big name players, like that's how you win a league. You take someone in these, you know, in the 12th, 13th pick or whenever it may be that can just buy himself return first round value as he, as he has done in the past. We've seen John Carlos Stanton do this. It's just at his ADP. If he was maybe 175, I'd be totally open, especially after how many games he's played up the past few years, but we're buying him staying healthy. And I, I, I just can't. Maybe if you only missed one se- one full season, I'd be open to it. But after two, yeah, no, I'm out. I'd let someone else take on that that risk. But thanks a ton for coming on, man. I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, giving me your time and discussing all these fantasy baseball players. I know a lot of people are still not really even in fantasy baseball mode for the most part, but uh, it's always good to get this kind of primer down, discuss a ton of guys who really – just are kind of still up in the air. Like we mentioned earlier with the DH, not even being a possibility, not, not, not a possibility, but not being established yet. But uh, Frank Stanfill from CBS fantasy uh, works on the fantasy baseball today pod. Just any parting thoughts. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at roto underscore Frank. You can read all my work at cbssportscom slash fantasy. Um, of course, hosts of the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast. We're upping our content throughout February and March as well as we ramp up towards the season. So I really do appreciate you having me on. And I think we should just end on this. And what I've told people is 2021 is a year to play fantasy baseball because there is not as much groupthink as ever before. I mean, there's, you know, people are going to plant their flags and we, we see that every year. But like, I think 
this year more than ever before, you're, you're going to see ADP kind of thrown out the window because everyone has a different process for evaluation heading into the season, given the fact that we're coming off a 60-game season. So uh, if there's ever a year to play fantasy baseball, I really do believe it's 2021 because it's going to be crazy, and I welcome it. Yeah, no, Frank, thank you so much. Uh, everyone, make sure to go check out rotoballer.com for all of your fantasy sports needs, whether that be football, baseball, basketball, hockey, golf, MMA, video games, etc. doesn't matter if you want it. We got it over at rotoballer.com. Uh, use promo code KEV at checkout, KEV, K-E-V, for uh, 10% off your purchase for our fantastic strategy guides and draft kits. Uh, our premium packages are chock full of information to help you win big in 2021 and beyond uh, rotaballer.com come check us out review rate and subscribe to the operating room on apple Podcasts. follow on spotify and uh thanks again for tuning in uh, that was roto frank i'm at roto surgeon uh thanks to everybody for tuning in and uh talk to you guys next time